Thank you for listening to this week's message from North Shore Christian Church. For more information about North Shore, please visit northshorechristian.org. Good morning. Good, uh, there we go. I messed up already. Um, and I, I got to warn you. I feel like I need to warn you. Uh, the staff already knows this. Um, there's sometimes you come in with a message and you know you've got too much to say and you've got too much passion. This would be one of those messages. So if you've brought your sleeping bag, no. Um, uh, what I'm doing is that's called accountability to get you out of here at a reasonable time. But, uh, and talk slow because I'm so excited. Uh, but anyway, I'm re- this series uh, has been exciting for me. I mean, I just uh, think it just so points out the journey with Jesus. Uh, you know, and uh, every scripture I read, I always think, oh, this is my favorite, but I've been having that a lot as I've been studying and just sitting with Jesus in this. So anyway, so my, my, my trust is God has something to say to us, and I'll try to not get in the way this morning, okay? Um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get a Bible to you. And turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Um, and as we uh, get ready to go in God's Word, I'd just like to pray for all of us. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Let me pray over us. Father, we love you. You're good. Uh, we trust the power of your word, and we um, ask that you would give it to us um, deep in our heart. It would transform and change us. So we are in a position of surrender, of allowing you to do your good work. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Again, uh, Radical Love is the name of our series, and we are launched it from uh, Jesus' instructions and his new command given in the upper room. In John 13, verses 34 through 35, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples there, and he tells them, he goes, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so love one another, so that the world will know that you are my disciples. Um, and so in this uh, call to love, this new commandment, what we understand is we are all called to love one another. But this command is a radical command. Because he says, not in your own strength. Love like I loved you, right? And so this term radical is we're experiencing this of, and you can add definitions to it, but it's something that's uncommon, right? Out of the ordinary. It's beyond the boundaries. Uh, Might I say it's extreme? It's extreme. Have you ever watched anything extreme? We saw Pat's video, and I should post a picture of where I was during this thing. I was about 1,500 feet below him with these on the ground. Just so you know, that's where I was, right? Um, Let it go. This is a video. Let's watch this thing.
Are you, are you okay? <laughs> Listen, even watching this when I was studying and it showed you, I was like, whoa, whoa, it's okay. Uh, uh, it's extreme, isn't it? It's extreme. That last um, shot was a man named Alex Holland, uh, and he was free soloing climbing. These are new terms to me. That means he was climbing with no rope. All those people were uh, free running. I'm not sure what the building stuff is called, um, but what that means is they have no rope. Uh, extreme, right? Uh, Alex was uh, climbing uh, El Capitan in Yellowstone, if you've ever been there. And I've been there, and it's impressive. 2,900 feet high, and he climbed it with no ropes. Crazy, extreme. Uh, but when someone does something like that, you know, right, we pay attention, like, and we start asking these questions. What makes someone do that? What makes them tick? What's their why behind doing it? There's something in them that is different, that's radical, extreme. And even if I will never do that, which just so you know, unless I'm forced to, I will never do that. Um, I will never skydive, right? Um, but I wonder what it is in somebody that makes them do that. There's something powerful inside them that I'm drawn to, and I can't take my eyes off of it, right? Well, for Alex to make us look at him and say, wow, what makes that guy tick? They believe that that feat of free solo in El Capitan was the greatest sports achievement uh, in history. I don't know if that's true. I'm sure it's an opinion, but it's pretty, pretty impressive. It's that stage, uh, that cliff, that allows us to look at him and say, what makes that guy tick? And even make the statement I just made. Jesus gives us a radical stage. In Matthew 16, 18, he's preparing his disciples for his departure and he builds a stage. He says, on you, Peter, rock, your faith, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is a stage where we live out radical love where we live out a love that's outside the boundaries, that's extraordinary, that blows people's minds, that they can't even get their hands around as they witness it. And they do the same thing when, when they see radical love expressed from God's stage by God's people, you and I, they can't help to ask what makes them tick. Why do they love like that? I could barely get my hands around what I'm witnessing from the church. I kind of want that. I'm kind of drawn to that. That's what we are called to do as a church. Is on this stage, our church, the church, is expressed Jesus' love to one another because the world's watching. And through us, they're going to see Jesus' love for all people. Jesus' mercy, his grace, his salvation, his healing. They see that through our radical love. Matthew 5.16 says this, right? Let your light shine before men. Man, your stage, let them see it. Um, so they see your good works. And they will what? Give glory to the Father who is in heaven. You might be the 
only, oftentimes the first, Jesus any moment sees. And remember, when they see, they do it from a distance, far off. You don't, a lot of times, you know they're even watching you. But they're watching you. They're watching this church. How are we performing on this stage? Is it Jesus' radical love? There's a problem on this stage, though, you know, the church. <laughs> it's a place where great tensions are found and happen, right? We live our lives with one another with clenched fists, ready to fight over so many things. Well, we're going to look at a book today, uh, 1 Corinthians, and we're going to talk about radically loving your rivals, right? Paul wrote a letter uh, to the Corinthian church. And this church is uh, a church that is going through trouble, that they have their fists clenched. They are fighting. There are tensions there. I mean, Paul could write this letter to us today, right? And so let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to step through this book, and we're going to do a flyby. And this is why I say I've got way more to say than I have time. This is an amazing book, um, and there's so much into it. And we're going we're gonna to miss a lot of it because I'm kind of floating you know, at the 30,000-foot view to, to grab this concept that you'll see. Um, but good news, next January, right, uh, our Biblical Foundations team will lead an in-depth study of 1 Corinthians. So make sure, not just that study, but anytime biblical foundations, you go to that at 9 o'clock and you come to service here and be part of the church family, right? But that's our space where we get in-depth with Scripture. And they're going to do this book. I'm excited um, because it's, it's an incredible book. But I almost apologize to you because I am leaving so much out. And it, uh, my first pre-preach um, I did on this weekend was that it was way, way too long, okay? <laughs> so hopefully I've t- tuned it down. But biblical foundations, January, watch for it. Okay, so 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, or 1, verse 2. What we see, what Paul says is we're going to see um, uh, that this is a relatable church for us. Okay, this is a relatable church. And, and what Paul does, he's writing to the church of God in Corinth. Okay, this letter is going to the church in Corinth. Uh, here's a map of it. It pops up here. Uh, you recognize Greece here. And Corinth is kind of right in the middle there. Uh, Paul established that church on his second missionary journey. And so, and this letter, he wrote from Ephesus back to him. And I'll get into that a little bit later. Um, But there is Corinth. And and Corinth is a really important city. It is a city. You can see its location there. It's in Greece, which was a powerful empire at what point in history. Um, But also, Corinth was an important city for Rome. Because in this letter, remember, Rome kind of ruled the region, their empire. And Corinth was actually a city that Constantine identified, said, that's important to the Roman Empire. And so basically remodeled it and and made it almost like a, I'll use this word, a mini Rome. Right? And so had heavy, heavy 
Rome influence, fortified with the military. You can see how strategic it is there with those two harbors coming together. It brought uh, the world together for commerce and the, all these things. It had the culture there of Rome, had the culture of Greece. Many, many Jews um, were there. They were converted, but also they migrated there because of all the trade. And then many Gentiles from all over, this absolutely cosmopolitan melting place of this important city, Corinth. And I said it's a relatable church because our city in our region, right, uh, is important as well. Think of Everett, right? You've probably heard about, there's this company in Everett called Boeing. Uh, uh, if you have not heard about that and you're here, come talk to me. And we, uh, <laughs> uh, but it is an international company, right? Uh, leaders in aviation right here in our city. Incredible power. We have a naval base here, right? Uh, that is, you know, uh, it has actually the communication system. And I know sometimes I have no idea what I can say, so I'm going to be really careful here. But it is an extremely uh, strategic and important, powerful communication system for our armed forces, for the Navy, right here in Everett, right? Everett's the county seat of the third largest county in the state. And all of that just brings people together, a cosmopolitan of people. So I had some fun today. I just sat and I said, uh, who's at North Shore? And, and I, I came up with this. I just sat there and started thinking, asked some of the staff, but listen, who's here? The countries represented for people who attend North Shore, the USA, Canada, Mexico, Honduras, Colombia, Venezuela, Philippines, Australia, China, Vietnam, Korea, Russia, Ukraine, Germany, Hungary, Romania, Scotland, Italy, Zambia, Uganda, Kenya, Haiti, and I'm sure I forgot. I was saying, who do I know? Uh, it's incredible. Um, and there's many denominations. You know, in Corinth, you had Roman influence and all their gods. Greek influence, of course, and all their gods. You had uh, God in Jewish thing, and then eventually the converted Christians, and then you had Gentiles and all theirs. Uh, for us, look at how the Christians that gather here uh, from these denominations. Of course, the Christian church, the church of God, church of Christ, Baptist, Methodist, Anglican, or Episcopalian, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Calvary Chapel, Four Squares, Assembly of God, the Worldwide Church of God, Pentecostal, Evangelical Free, Free Methodist, Orthodox, Catholic, and people who have transitioned from the Mormon Church, the Church of Latter-day Saints, um, all call North Shore home. Um, and also, that we believe in interdenominational or uh, intergenerational, meaning um, all the ages. There's young and old here. And so we see Paul writing this letter uh, to Corinth. Um, as you might expect there, that there's some tension, right? Guess what, North Shore? As you would expect from that list I just gave you, there's some tension. There's some closed fists going on, Right? There's some fights to be had. And this is why Paul writes this letter. 
Okay, 1 Corinthians uh, 1 in verses um, 18, I believe it is. Uh, excuse me, 10. Uh, the rivalry in the church. The rivalry in the church. Point B there. 1 Corinthians 10, or 1, 10 through 11 says this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions. And that Greek word for divisions there has about six different uh, English translations to it. Uh, one of them is rivalry, just an you know, inspiration for my message. Um, uh, it's from Scripture. But, but there be no rivalry among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. We don't know who Chloe is. We don't know if it's male or female, okay, just so you know. Uh, but it's been reported uh, to me by Chloe, Chloe's people, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And so I want to start, what's the definition of a rival, right? And yeah, I looked over, I mean, this is a simple one, right? It's somebody that aspires for the same thing you do. It's a person who aspires for the same thing you do. Well, where is rivalry in the church, right? I hope you all aspire to a closeness with Jesus Christ, to spiritual maturity. And in that pursuit, right, we aspire that. There are many different thoughts and opinions and practices and spaces and all that stuff uh, of what that looks like, how to achieve it, and it creates clenched fist, tension, rivalry, right? talking about the same thing, the same pursuit. And this is what Paul talks about, okay? And so we're going to whiz through 1 Corinthians, okay? And uh, I just talk about some of the things there, okay? So in 1 Corinthians, uh, in, in your parentheses, those are chapters, okay? I'm just going to touch on the rivalries. The first rival we see is the rivalry over preferences in the church. The rivalry over preferences in the church um, in their rivalry, what Paul has heard is that there are people that are saying, hey, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas, which is Peter. I follow Christ. And so what they're doing is, remember, the word following, when you see it in Scripture, is a discipleship word. You follow a rabbi. And so what they're saying is, hey, I follow this rabbi, the right rabbi, the better rabbi. That's my guy. And what was big in the Greek culture and the Roman culture, probably human culture, is status. You following the right person. Are you with the elite? And so it's really important to say, my person's better than your person. My person does it better than your person does it. So here's the thing. The rivalry also really comes to this idea of basic preferences. Because in following your rabbi, what you do is you actually become like your rabbi. So when you see that word following in Scripture, it's who you're becoming like. So they're saying this is my preference. I'm becoming like Paul. I'm becoming like Apollos. I'm becoming like Peter. I'm becoming like Jesus. And that looks so good. That Jesus phrase, but I've got to put a little asterisk on it. Uh, this is an unhealthy pursuit right there of this. 
Paul's going to use the next few chapters to talk about you guys are messing up. So you come in January, and they'll talk all about that, okay? <laughs> uh, hopefully that's a good teaser for you. Uh, he says, no, no, so this isn't healthy. But these preferences, my way is better than your way. My way is more holy and more spiritual than yours. Do we have preferences today at North Shore? Yes. <laughs> okay, just tell you. Yes. And people, yep. And the internet made it horrible. I mean, this whole idea of celebrity pastor is actually a thing. I'm sure it makes Jesus nauseous. But man, there are literally famous pastors. And now because of the internet, we get to access them at will. You know, or certain leaders. That's who I follow. That's the really good teacher. That's the one I got. I, that's who I listen to. And what it's done, it's really hurt, right? Hurt the family. And I love it. We should get information and knowledge wherever God gives it to us. But there's something we talk about, that word following, right? Uh, it's synonymous who is your spiritual family. And there's a whole lot that goes into that of being the church. And preferences, right, can begin to draw you away from family and take you somewhere else. You know, I mean, I was just saying that our, we have a uh, preaching team here, right? Fertile ground for this whole idea, right? You know, we have, I mean, I've intentionally put different types of people on here. So, boy, if you like education, oh, guess who you love? Sanjay. When's he preaching? I'm showing up then. That nuts God, he's all passionate. I'm going to skip that Sunday, right? We can do that. I like this guy. I like that guy. Um, and you start removing yourself from family and over into preference. And you create rivalry, right? I mean, uh, there are preferences even with, you know, you know, our other staff, right? I like this pastor. I like this staff member. I like this small group leader. Preferences are there. There's preferences as far as expression. I like this music. That's real music. It's other stuff. I haven't heard this term forever, so I'll go and use it. Uh, the 7-Eleven worship, I don't like it. The same seven words 11 times. Do you remember that old phrase? I've heard it for years, but oh, that music is so shallow. This music is holy. Boy, this music really makes you, grabs your heart. This is just a old person music, you, right? Because I boy, they raise their hands, but they're making it all about them. Or they don't raise their hand. They're not spiritual. Right? And I could go on and on and on. You have preferences. So do I. So I tell you, preferences aren't the problem. Because if you are living and breathing, you have a preference. But it's priority that's the problem. It's priority that becomes the problem. When we take those preferences, and they become our top priority, it starts to hurt things. And I'm going to write a couple of things I want to read to you. Make sure I get this right. You know, as I just said, priority uh, is a problem because what happens is when we start prioritizing preferences over God's power and his work, we do damage to ourselves and to the family. When we prioritize a, a preference over being part of a spiritual family, Right? How many of you would have your kids saying, I listen to those parents four doors down. Really like them. They're a little bit better. 
My bedtime's at midnight, not 11, so going this way. Love you guys. I'll still stay here. Still get this allowance, but going over here a little bit because it's a little bit better. Uh, yeah, so you guys start talking about when we should be in and all that. No, I'm not going to listen because, you know, Bob and Sue were my, my people I grabbed for this. Understand? Uh, it hurts family. Preference isn't the problem. It's when we prioritize it hurts family. When you prioritize um, gratification over spiritual growth. Am I entertained? Is that to my liking? Over do I see God at work? That's what Paul talks about in this whole section in chapters 1 through 4. So the question is, how do we handle when people have different preferences than us? Because we all have them. How do we do it? Stay tuned. The next thing is the rivalry over lifestyles in the church. And this is it's the lifestyles um, there that Paul was dealing with in chapters 5 through 7. Um, our uh, sin has uh, entered the church, is there, and it's a, uh, the church, around the church. So he addresses the sin that he gets this report. Uh, the first one is sexual sin. And he states in uh, chapter 5 that uh, even the pagans don't do this, that I hear that you are doing, Christian. And then lawsuits. He says, Paul... I heard you guys are suing each other, going to court. And you're letting the non-believers, you know, judge in the things that uh, should be the righteous to do. You should come together and trust God's word in each other. First, give that away. And the third is marriage. Doesn't really list what the problem is. You can only uh, discern it through seeing what his answer to it is. There's something going on in marriage. He says this is, in chapter 7, is what a a Christian should think about marriage and live out. But obviously sin is entered into this. So it's lifestyles. Is that a problem for us today? Sin in the church? Sin around the church? Yes. Right? But I want to give you a little thinking as you look at this. Um, because here it talks about unbelievers, right, and their influence. I hope this. I hope today, whether it's online or right here, there are unbelievers here. Because what that tells me is that we might be doing something right on this stage that Jesus put us on. We might be loving enough that the irresistibility of Jesus is actually working. You say, whatever they have, I want. I am broken. I'm lost. I'm confused. I'm seeking. I'm at the end of my rope. That's radical. That's something I don't seem to possess. That God thing, that, that Jesus thing that I'm seeing in them. So I'm going to go and take a brave, bold step. And I'm going to come into their gathering and listen about their Jesus and what makes them tick. I hope there are unbelievers here. Right? For the believers, right? Guess what? Paul tells us in Romans 7, and we are going to struggle with the flesh. Sin is going to impact us. People always say, I don't like the church. They're hypocrites. What do you mean we're hypocrites? We gather right here because we're sinners and we know it. If I wasn't a sinner, I'd be home right now enjoying that sun. I wouldn't waste my time. And a Sunday morning, I'd be, oh, I don't sleep in a lot, but you know, you sleeper inners, you'd be in bed right now. 
But what you know is that you are a sinner saved by grace, and Jesus has something for you, and you're going to come and worship him. Galatians 6 tells us we're all in a battle with the flesh. So there is a place here for us as sinners, but it does create rivalry. Come back in January and hear about all the details, but how are we going to handle when people live different lifestyles than us? How are we going to handle that? What do we do? And it leads us to the next rivalry um, that starts in chapter 8. It's the rivalry uh, over maturity in the church. In in chapter 8, what Paul does is he starts talking about food uh, given to idols and eating it. He mentions it in Romans as well. Uh, But what's going on here in this rivalry is, um, you know, the Romans and the Greeks, they'd have their own form of worship to their gods. And then after they would give the meat, you know, uh, to the idol, well, they'd grab that and they'd sell it at the market or serve it for dinner, right? And Paul's saying, yeah, I'm going to guess that it was at a reduced rate. I don't know. Um, I'm going to eat this. It's awesome. I don't believe in their gods. There's only one God. So, you know, the bad's on them. I'm going to get this great meal and I'm going to eat. Well, the new converts, and I'm going to guess it's the ones converted from, you know, Roman uh, worship in their gods or Greeks, um, it impacted them. That some of them, their consciences were drawn in, they would go back to thinking that they are worshiping this idol and they partook in this. And so you had this spiritual mature Paul, no problem. This young believer, I'll use the word immature in their faith, struggling, created a rivalry. You know, is that true here? Are there people in different places in their walk with God here? Yes. Yes. You know, and, and so the tension in our rivalries around this, it's around liberty, influence, and legalism. Okay? Liberty. We have liberty in Christ. We're not under the law. Right? Those idols have no power over Jesus. They have earthly power. Of them, they have no power over Jesus, over kingdom. And so it's like, right? And there's many things that fit into that category. You know, take it out of worship and stuff, just things that we do that there's liberty in. But the other thing we have to remember is influence. People are watching experiences. Here is a perfect thing I've heard many times, the use of alcohol, right? Use of alcohol, big one in church, Right? Um, uh, some, man, you know, you do not use it. Um, some, you can use it. Let's don't talk about the text other, but we see alcohol use in Scripture. Is that fair enough? Okay. If not, if you don't vouch true, let's talk. <laughs> but in that, um, and so let's say there's a liberty for that. But there are people right in front of us right now who struggle with alcohol, Right? Or have lived a life they've seen the pain and abuse of alcohol. And so it scars them. They have, you know, post-traumatic stress around it. And they're influenced when they are around it. And so it goes into the idea of what do we do? 
just shut it off? Uh, no, that's the danger of what Galatians talks about strongly is legalism. Legalism is dangerous. It's what the Pharisees struggled with. And Jesus said, you don't know me away from me, right? So legalism is not the answer. We want scripture and God's truth. Uh, what the answer in this levels of spiritual maturity is understanding your liberty, understanding what does scripture say you can do, influence that you are impacting people, and then simply concerning yourself with other people, whatever the setting is. It may not be an answer all the time. It, may, it might change based on who's around you, whatever that is. It's a discipleship issue of growing people, right? Because there's a rivalry over spiritual maturity. And if we're doing our job well, there's people on the full range from infants in Christ all the way to parents in Christ. Journeyed for a day, even seeking maybe, to have been in the church 50, 60 years. So there's a rival. What do we do? How do we handle people in different maturity spaces? And then he goes on into the next rivalry he talks about found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, really all the way to the end. I put 14 in there, but it really uh, goes all the way to the end of the chapter. And, and here the rivalry he brings up in uh, chapter 11, he starts, is the um, uh, tension and rivalry of authority. Where is authority over you? Who has authority, right? And it goes into women's role in ministry pops up. What can women do? What's going on here with the women? Right? Then he goes into talking about the Lord's Supper. Right? Communion. Uh, and then, uh, then it goes to um, talking about, I'm looking through the scripture right now. Uh, it goes to the Lord's Supper. Then it goes to spiritual gifts. Chapter uh, four, uh, 12, 13, and 14. Starts talking about spiritual gifts in the church, right? And it goes into order. And then it goes into chapter 15, doctrinal things. Resurrection is a real focus there. So as I looked at this, says, there's their rivalry of all these things that are creating tension. And I looked at North Shore. Do those things cause tension at North Shore? Yes. How many conversations do I have about women's roles in ministry? A thousand of them, right? Forever. Spiritual gifts. Which one should you have? Should you use it? Should you promote it? Burr, 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 right? Uh, and, you know, and not degrading it, right? Another thousands of conversations around that. You know, how we treat other people is another thing he brings up when he's talking about the Lord's Supper. Many people come and talk about justice um, and, and compassion and where are we at there? What are we doing then? It's an important topic, and there's different opinions. There's different doctrinal opinions. There are different ideas um, around order of the church. What is orderly? What's the right way to do the service? What should be permitted? What should you encourage? All of that is very real right now for us. You are having those conversations, right? Right? Ones that you won't even tell me about, you have them around your dinner table. Did you know? It's, it's good, you know, like I told you, it's good, it's okay. Because Paul's going to land this whole thing, checking the time, um, with really the message. Right? With you on this stage, 
with your fist clenched because of rivalries, what do you do? What do you do? And he starts with this, you know, the resolution. The resolution for the church. Uh, he's talking, of course, for us is too. It starts with this. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, verse 13, I believe it is, um, uh, he says this, you have to have conviction. Stand firm, is what he says. Stand firm, right? Be watchful, stand firm. In the faith, meaning convictions are good. Convictions of knowing what you believe, why you believe it. I believe this. I think it's the next season that our country needs. I think the church has made a huge mistake in the seeker-sensitive movement because what they did is to draw big crowds as they entertained the daylights out of them and then told them nothing. And now they're out here trying to live this world. There's no foundation for them. And they're thinking, what are the answers? If you guys, the only thing you can do is play a cool song and give a clever message, that doesn't work for me. And so I think the next season is right here what Paul's talking about, is we have to have conviction. We have to stand strong in biblical truth. Okay? But he keeps going. What Paul always does, I love this, um, is we have to be in communion with one another. 1 Corinthians 11, talking about the Lord's Supper there, uh, verses um, 11 uh, through 12. I'm gonna, I'll give you the right text here. I'll just read it to you. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 18 and 19. Uh, uh, to, we need to be in communion. Listen to this, and it's interesting. So I'm going to read this scripture to you and tell you the context that Paul puts it in. It's incredible. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, rivalries, right? And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And some of you just said, yes, we get a fight. But yeah, there must be a fight, okay? I'm all in, right? But let me tell you the chapter he puts it in. He's talking about the Lord's Supper, right? He's talking about you are doing this all wrong, the Lord's Supper. I mean, he has strong warnings to them. Why are some of you sick and dying? Because you're mishandling the Lord's Supper and you're doing it with the wrong heart. So this is exactly where this text says we need to have factions in us. And where they would have uh, in this Lord's Supper for them at this time was that something called the love feast. The agape feast. He says, when you come in with your convictions, you need to come in with your communion too. We are family. You are called together. And we're called into conversations, not conflict. And there's a big difference, Right? And he says, the Lord suffers. Why do we call it communion? How are we communion with one another? Right? You know, other denominations and uh, other beliefs, you know, call it different things. We call it communion because we want to remind us that we're going to be in communion with God and communion with one another. And if we're not those two things, do not partake. Get those things right. You with me? This is where that is. So we have to have communion, conversations with each other. And I love this. So what does that even look like? Well, a couple chapters later, he commissions us. This is what it looks like. 
And I've got my good friend, uh, Jeff Reed, and he's going to come up, and he is going to recite 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Was, is really our call to action. How do we do this? Brother, will you come up? If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy, speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge, will become useless. But love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when full understanding comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, as in a cloudy mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Love that. First uh, Corinthians chapter 13. And don't worry, I'm not just starting the message. <laughs> um, as we look, at the resolution of we know we have conviction, we know we need to have communion, um, but we also have to live it out as he called us to live it out. And that is in these three steps, as, as you heard from this text, and you can look at 1 Corinthians 13 with me, is uh, by being spiritually mature. By being spiritually mature, 
in Matthew 22, Jesus is asked this question, what's the greatest commandment? What they're asking, what is the highest thing we should seek? What is ultimate spiritual maturity? What is it? What should we work toward, attain? And he gives the answer to spiritual maturity. What is it? Love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And then I love it, he attaches something else because you can't divide them. The next is love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws of the prophets hang on this. This is the goal. This is get on the stage, be the church, radically love one another. John chapter 13. It's being spiritually mature and understanding that um, are speaking prophecies, God's words important? Yes. Just because you had this strong counterbalance uh, doesn't mean anything he lists is not important, very important. But only important if they are found on the foundation of spiritual maturity and love, and you are carrying them that way. All right? And why is it the pinnacle of spiritual maturity, the goal of love? It's not any kind of love. The same love mentioned in John 13 is mentioned here, and it's something called agape love, unconditional love. Why is that radical? Think of any relationship, any love relationship, whatever level that love is, that you can say it's absolutely 100% unconditional. It, 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 we don't know that. Right? I know there's some relationships get really close to that. Parent and a child, right? But man, does it achieve it? That's why it's out of the brain. The calling is high to agape love each other. And he explains what that looks like here. And let's just walk through that together. Uh, he lists in there seven do's and seven don'ts in dealing with people, with our rival in agape love. The first two, love is patient, love is kind. Those become kind of the overarching beginnings. You know, so if you hear nothing else about how to do it, do that. Be patient, be kind. Because the rest of them speak into that, right? Be patient. Allow people to grow at God's pace, not yours. With me? Be patient with them. Let God do his work. And it says love is kind. It's, it's, listen, it's nice. It's caring. It's honoring. It's respectful. Does that mean you're not going to tell somebody a hard truth? No, but you can do that in love. You can do that in honor and respect and caring. Love is kind. And then the next seven don'ts appear in the list. And these are the opposite of kind and patient. Love does not envy or boast. You know, jealous or prideful. And I just understand these jealousy and pride are byproducts of insecurity. If you struggle with that, strong word coming, means you're not really strong in your faith. You don't have confidence in it. You don't think it could stand the weather of this person disagreeing or having a different practice than you. It takes a lot of confidence in Jesus and biblical truth to say, well, that's corny, but all right, let's talk. You with me? It's when you're insecure that you got to fix it right now. Love is not arrogant or rude. It's not sharp tongue to win an argument. Many of us spend our time trying to make somebody believe what we believe 
First is there's a difference of getting to know Jesus and trusting him. There is a difference there. Don't just go win an argument. Love them to Jesus. Love does not insist on its own way. It's flexible. It's open. It's curious. It's a learner. It's a listener. Love is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't get mad when someone isn't where you are at. Right? And then he comes in with the five other do's, but those are really how you carry out patient and kind with our rivals. Says love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. There is a goal, and it's truth. And John 14, 6 is clear. There is one capital T truth, and that's Jesus Christ. That's what it rejoices with. Anything that points to him and guides someone to that, that is what they rejoice in. Love bears all. I love it. It has no issues off limits. It can handle it. Because guess what? God handles it. Jesus handles it. Love believes all things. It trusts people. Understand that God is working and moving. The Spirit is convicting. And it trusts their journey, right? It hopes all things. Meaning this, it rests on the good promises of God. That everything God says will come to be and are true. He's just. So whatever the journey is, God wins. It endures all things. And this is harder. You know, this is where, why agape is hard. Because if you're going to radically love somebody, guess what? You are going to have war wounds. It's going to be painful. Right? Parents, you know, when you have kids that have walked away from the faith, you know all about those hurts, the pains. Right? Friends, you know, even your political system, how painful is that? It hurts, right? It's long-suffering. No God wins. So you're going to have to endure. When it's unconditional, it's hard. It's hard. But the charge to end the chapter is to grow spiritually. Uh, you were once like a child. Keep growing. You know, you see in the mirror now dimly what you will see. That's the Christ like because perfect is coming. Jesus. There's a phrase called love wins. That is a true phrase. If it, it comes out of 1 Corinthians 15, right? The victory is in Jesus Christ. That's where the victory is. Agape love does win. It's why it's the greatest thing. And so as we walk this stage out, we are called to radically love one another. And I'm going to finish with a couple of scriptures, and I'll ask the worship team to come out. And I take you back to 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and I add verse 14 to it. I'm going to read it in two translations. First of all, in the ESV, and then the Amplified. ESV says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now here's the Amplified, which highlights the Greek meaning the original language here. It says, be on guard. Stand firm in your faith. In God, respecting his precepts and keeping your doctrine sound. Act like mature men and be courageous. Be strong. Let everything you do be done in love, motivated and inspired by God's love for us. When we do this, we will love our rivals, which we have right next to you. Um, the way God loves us. And what will happen 
is the world will notice because they're watching. Are they drawn to the love that you express or should they run to the hills from you because that is not love, that's divisive, it's gossipy, it's full of hate, it's full of anger. Who wants that? Nobody. Why are churches decreasing all over the country and the world? Because we've been horrible on our stage. But the world desperately needs us to be of conviction in communion and full of radical agape love. When we do that, uh, what happens is our fists open up. Right? I'm going to invite you to stand. Will you stand with me? I ask you to, to do me a favor. Uh, to clinch both, both your fists. Clinch them, right? Clinch them. And in that fist, you have conviction. You have passion. You have belief, right? That are important. Well, Paul writes to the Corinthians, when he teaches about what Jesus calls us to, he wants us to get to a place of unclenching those fists. So I want you to keep your fists clenched and just think through this as you have whatever you have clenched right now, whatever it is. Unclench your fist and open up your hands to someone with different needs than you. Think about doing that. Unclench your fist and open up your ears and listen to someone that believes different than you. Unclench your fist and open your heart to someone that you find offensive. Here's a, unclench your fist and open your heart to Jesus because this is where radical love begins. Without it, you will not be able to do it. If you don't know it, if you have not experienced the radical love of Jesus in your life, you will never be able to give it out because it is a love that's divine and bigger and stronger than any of us. And it's only through his power but when we do that, first of all, we get the life that he promises us. And then we begin to be lights that shine light. That's agape love. And they start wondering what in the world makes them tick. Because Jesus' radical love will empower you to build bridges instead of fences. Jesus' radical love will empower you to make friends instead of enemies. Jesus' radical love will empower you to create conversations instead of conflicts. And Jesus' radical love will empower you to inspire hope instead of despair. And Jesus' Jesus's radical love will empower our church to be a lighthouse for Jesus instead of a roadblock. In what area or topic or relationship do you need to unclench your fist and say yes to him? And it begins with this, of saying, I give you everything. I surrender it all to you. I need your love to invade me so that I can be empowered to walk out your love, die to self, and be a radiant reflection of this beautiful Savior that loves this world and died for them so they could be with him. I love this. I'm not sure why, but Jesus is counting on us. So I'm going to ask the worship to sing, and let's be that prayer and I'm just, I mean, you may have already unclenched your fists. That's okay. But whatever you're holding there, give it to him. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and that beautiful, powerful love, that redeeming love that washes us clean of all of our sin that separates us from God, 
and ushers us into eternal life with Jesus now and forever and the abundant life he gives. If you do not know that, with confidence, come up. There will be a prayer team here. If there's something that you're holding that's just painful, you need someone to pray with you, you come up. I will be up here, then I'll be back there. You talk to me. North Shore, I love you. Let's radically love one another, our rivals.